And they said, uh, you need to come with me right now. And I said, I don't even know who you are. I'm not going anywhere. And the one guy was uh, the head of the, uh, the pilot assistance program for the APA, which was American Airlines Pilot Union. And the other guy was um, the chief pilot for my airline. And this guy, Dave, he had a phone. He handed the phone to me. He said, this is your crew scheduling. Tell them that you're sick. And I said, I'm not sick. I said, I'm, <laughs> what are we doing? I'm not sick. And he said, listen. Tell them that you're sick. That's all you have to say is I'm sick. They know that you're going to be talking to them. Tell them that you're sick. Or if you don't, you're going to end up on the news because the news vans are already looking for you. So, you know, I mean, I'm a rational person and I was, you know, coming off a major bender, but I knew that there was something wrong with that situation. So I just said, yeah, I'm sick. And they said, okay, we're removing from your schedule. And I think happiness is not even the right word. I think what I'm really looking for is, is peace, is peace and serenity. That's what I'm, I'm, I want to look in the mirror and, and, you know, be happy with what I'm looking at. And sometimes it's, I've got to be selfless to do that. You know, I've got to help others to, to really be happy with myself. And that's totally cool because, you know, anytime, you know, my, my, I can be just as negative and pessimistic as, as the next guy. But when I'm doing something to help somebody else or when I'm listening to someone else, I'm not thinking of my own problems. I'm not focused on me, me when I'm helping someone else. You know, and I think that is, is such a massive lesson that I've learned. You're listening to Flying Straight, an aviator's guide to navigating through a life of sobriety. People in the flying industry and other walks of life will share their experiences of living a life free of alcohol and other drugs. You will also hear from experts in the world of addiction and self-improvement. Join Andrew O'Mealy, airline pilot and non-practicing alcoholic, as he takes you on a journey, discovering how a sober life can lead to a deeper level of happiness. Hi folks and welcome to this fifth episode of Flying Straight, Piloting a Sober Life. My name is Andrew O'Mealy, your host, and I hope you're doing okay. Well, on today's episode, I speak with someone from over the other side of the world in Manhattan, Captain Billy Peterson. He was born and bred in that New York area, and as I said, he's living in Manhattan today. This interview is a little longer than the others, but I tell you after recording, then playing it back, there is not one word I could cut out. It's such a powerful account of his life. I find it hard to summarise it now, but what I will say is that his story, with plenty of differences to mine, has more similarities. And I have a feeling that there are heaps of people who will be listening to this today will feel the same as I have. This guy has so many layers. His honesty and acceptance of himself are something that I have the deepest admiration for. Enough said by me. Here is his story. Hi, Billy. I really appreciate this time you've taken to talk with me today. And considering that's something we have in common, and that's the ability to miscalculate the time zones, I'm really glad this is happening now. Uh, last time I spoke, or we spoke, you just got back from Puerto Rico, and um, you've recovered from that. I did, I did, and since then, I uh, I went on another trip, another work trip down there to San Juan, and uh, just came back a few hours ago. Just flew up this afternoon. All oh, right. Did you? Was that an overnight or? 
Yeah, it was actually uh, it was just, it was a simple three day trip. One leg down to uh, Puerto Rico day one with a uh, Dominican Republic turn uh, the next day, and then another Dominican Republic turn this morning, and a uh, dead head back up to New York. All right. Any time for any uh, surfing, or it was just a very quick layover? Uh, there was uh, one very quick layover and another longer wet layover, but there was no waves, and uh, the water was kind of dirty, kind of uh, lots of seaweed sometimes, and uh, one of those times I hung out by the pool and read a book and got some food and, you know, typical overnight. Oh, yeah, it sounds terrible. Horrible, horrible. Well, I'm, I'm glad you made it from that ordeal. So that's pretty good. So, um, yeah, we uh, spoke fairly recently because I had heard your just the abbreviated story of your life at a HIMSS conference, and I, I found it absolutely fascinating. So we sat down not so long ago, and you you told me the unedited version, and I thought, <laughs> It's such an amazing story. Maybe we should record it this time. So here we are. All right. All right. <laughs> I don't know about amazing story, but uh, yeah, sure. Let's, uh, let's do it. Oh, it is, mate. It is. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess if we start from you know, the early days, you, you're, you're born and raised in the New York City area. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, that's correct. So, I, uh, so I'm, I'm like third generation... Uh, Irish American and my whole family I'm, on both sides came over from uh, from Northwestern Ireland over to Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, back in, you know, what the age. And, um, you know, my family just kind of, we, we stayed here. You know, we, I have no family anywhere else in the country but New York. And um, I grew up on Long Island about, uh, about 30 minutes from 30 miles or I guess in kilometers over that be um, 50 kilometers maybe. Oh, yeah, 50, yeah. yeah. From... Uh, from Manhattan, from New York, from the city. And um, I grew up out there in a very, um, no, working class, working class neighborhood. Yeah, okay. All right. And uh, so grew up there and then uh, I guess you were sort of keen on flying, but I remember you telling me that that wasn't the first career that you had. It was uh, a, a teacher. Yeah. So, so what I did is when, uh, you know, I, there was a whole bunch of different things I always wanted to do. And I was always kind of told that I couldn't do them. I wasn't smart enough, wasn't quick enough, wasn't good enough, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we hear that a lot in these rooms. I didn't really get the, uh, I don't know, the support, I guess I needed to, you know, to be free really. So I ended up, uh, what I was always told was just get a job with good benefits and, and good health insurance, you know, something we need in the States. And, um, you know, so I went to college to be a teacher and um, a technology education teacher, which is uh, it's uh, otherwise known as industrial arts. Like, um, so I was teaching at the high school level. I had an architectural drawing class. I had a transportation class. Um, you know, where we basically taught the kids how to rotate tires and change oil on cars, and you know, how an airplane flies—the basic kind of thing. But um, yeah, so that that was my first career. That was my first career was was teaching, and all throughout college and all my twenties, really, I, I bartended. Also, I was a, uh, and you know, it, it wasn't really a side job because in, you know, in places like New York, it's it's such a high paying job to, you know, to be a bartender that it took up took up a lot of time, it took up a lot of yeah, time. Right. Right. And as a uh, as a as a budding alcoholic, I uh, 
I enjoyed that much more than the teaching. And uh, I excelled at it and I had friends and I had to go to different bars on nights off to uh, socialize and network. And uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was kind of, kind of glamorous in its own little way. It wasn't a, you know, big fancy, you know, bar scene that I was involved in, but it was, it was my bar scene, you know, with my kind of people. And uh, it was, it was a great time. Um, and that was, that was my twenties. That was before I, I started flying. Right. Okay. So you were, you, you didn't like the, the teaching gig all that much. You just thought it wasn't for you or. So, you know, so the teacher thing is complicated because I was, uh, like, I liked what I actually kind of did. Like, I liked the classes I was teaching. They were fun. They weren't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't teaching calculus or uh, science. You know, I was teaching, uh, like, having fun. You know, I was like, I was like the, yeah, fun, the fun stuff, yeah. the fun class, you know. But um, yeah. what I didn't like about it was I didn't like, you know, waking up at five in the morning and sitting in traffic to get to school and then, you know, being the same place every day, you know, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. kind of thing. That wasn't for me. You know, it also interfered with my nightlife of drinking and doing drugs, being that I had to get up so early every morning. Um, so I had I had all of that was was working against it. And I was also in a very affluent school district, a very rich uh, school district. Uh, very, it's a public school, but it was very, um, the kids that came from a lot of money and they took my class just because it was an easy A. They knew that they can just show up and, and pass the class with a good grade. And um, it, it was uh, it was just very difficult to kind of not – the kids kind of walked all over me and were allowed to yeah. kind of talk down to me because they were that wealthy that they kind of – if there was any issue, the parents would just come go to the principal and say, my child is having a you know an issue with, the, with, the, with Mr. Peterson, um, handle it. You know, and then I would be told, take it easy on this kid, you know. So it was very, uh, it, it was difficult for me because I came from a very, um, from a lower middle class area where, you know, if the, if the teacher ever called home, you know, I was the one that got in trouble. It wasn't the opposite way around. If I ever called one of these students' houses, you know, the parents would ask me what I did wrong. You know, it was a, yeah, right. Yeah. It, it was a, it was a way of life that I was not used to. So I'm sure that if I was in a different school, maybe a maybe a, a lower a lower class school district, I might have I might have liked it better. But I gave it two years, and and you know I was I was 20, 23, 24 years old at the time, and I was already looking forward to retirement. And uh, I knew I couldn't. It, it was just going to be like a waste of life if I stayed there. You know, so I. I started thinking of other things to do. And, and, um, you know, one thing I was teaching a class one day on, on aviation. And one of these kids, you know, kept interrupting me, telling me, you know, this, this class sucks. This is so boring. And I said, you know, when you when your parents take you to Switzerland to go skiing for the weekend, don't you wonder about the plane? Like, how does it actually get you there? And the one kid said, uh, you know, if you think flying so cool, why don't you quit and become a pilot? And, it was funny because I, I lived right right by um, LaGuardia Airport, which is one of the bigger airports in New York. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a pilot when I was a kid. It just I was just told I couldn't do it. And that afternoon, I sat down on a computer and Googled how to become an airline pilot. And I saw that you could actually do it without any military experience. And you can go to a flight school and you can work your way up through the ratings. And, um, you know, long story short, 
I I uh, did a little more research and I put in my resignation from the job and, and I picked a flight school in Florida that I was going to commit to go to. And that's yeah, that's awesome. That, yeah. So that that kid really stirred you into action in a sense. So it was a good thing that you did that. Yeah, that it was, class, it was, I guess. You know, I'm kind of grateful for the kid, even though I'd uh, like to wring his neck now if I saw him still. Um, but you know, <laughs> it, something he said. You know, sometimes you hear something and it just kind of it just clicks in your head and and that was kind of the uh, you know the little uh, the little push I needed to be like you know just to realize that what I was doing wasn't what I wanted to actually do. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, but it still took a while. So you you tended bath and all that sort of stuff. You you said that you, know, you, you really liked that job at the time. Uh, you were passionate about it. Passionate, passionate. <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess it was something you were good at. I was great at it. I was great at it. Um, yeah, I joke around that that uh, I was a better bartender than I am pilot. You know, I uh, I had more passion. For it. <laughs> I, I had more passion yeah. during drinks than I do for. Uh, you know, landing in a landing in an ILS. Um, it was a uh, yeah. I just had a blast doing it, man. You know, I drink it all I wanted to. You know, we were able to. Uh, it was it was it was New York, so you know, you do drugs and and the whole thing. It's it's just a uh, complete free for all. And I was young. I'm in my twenties. Yeah. Girls, I'm making money. It's I'm getting absolutely smashed every night. Uh, what's there not to love about that? You know, that was uh, it was yeah, right. falling. Yeah, I mean, at that age, that's just something that a, a lot of people would. Yeah, think that'd be just the the perfect life, and and I guess that that style of or that that type of living is just so normalised when everyone around you's into it as well, and into the drugs and partying hard, and yeah, you know, and smiling faces everywhere. You don't don't hear about the so many of the tragedies people probably cover them up a bit but you know when everyone around you i guess was doing the same thing that you wouldn't have thought oh i've got to stop doing this or was there sort of a a bit of a voice in the back of your head saying oh, hang on this isn't right so the the voice was definitely in the back of my head you know i didn't have uh you know all the people i associated with at the time they weren't going anywhere you know they were they weren't going anywhere with their lives. They were and a lot of, the, and a lot of those people, you know, this is, this is 20 years later, still doing the same thing. But I had the voice in my head that was telling me that, um, you know, I needed to make a, a major life change, career change. But I also had the voice in my head telling me that, you know, I was drinking too much and I was doing way too many drugs. I was doing, I had a, you know, dual diagnosis, uh, drugs and alcohol. My drug of choice was cocaine. Um, my drug of no choice was alcohol. You know, it's the one I didn't have a choice. I was just drinking. Yeah. Um, but um, I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to cut back. You know, I wanted to. I was, I was sick and tired of being, not sick and tired of being sick and tired. I wasn't there yet, but I was sick and tired of being like, uh, you know, polluted and constantly, you know, sleeping late and being irresponsible and not having any money because I spent it all on drugs and and you know gambling and stuff. Um, I wanted to kind of be a little responsible. I wanted to mature and grow up a little bit, you know, but my lifestyle wasn't allowing that. So I think that combined with the realization that I didn't want to be a teacher helped propel me into look for a, uh, a different career and, you know, aviation. And that's what made me choose a flight school, you know, a, a thousand miles away from, from New York down in Florida. Um, Cause I could get a fresh start, move down there and um and get away from get away from the bad habits 
you know. Yeah, and, right. So Fl- Florida was a good place for that, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, great place for it. <laughs> Let's go to Florida to get away from Yeah, good, good choice. Yeah, 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 yeah you know. Um, and at, at the end of the day, you know, uh, that, that was my first geographical uh, relocation is the term I learned in rehab. Um, you know, that I left to go to Florida to clean up my act and I was going to go to flight school and I was going to behave and study hard. And, you know, the second night I was there I, I met a buddy of mine from flight school who was my roommate and, uh, he suggested we go out and get a drink. And I said, sure. And he then suggested, why don't we just get a bottle of tequila? It'll be cheaper. We'll save money. And I said, sounds like a plan. And, uh, you know, by the end of that weekend, I had a drug dealer already in Florida and, uh, I knew half the bartenders in the city we were living in, and it was just off to the races, you know. I moved to get away from all that, and, you know, I just – I brought it with me. I was still the same person down there as I was in New York, you know, just uh, now there were just palm trees, you know. It just – that was the only difference. And I didn't have yeah. a, <laughs> I didn't have a job anymore, so I gave it up to go to Florida. So, oh. uh, so that's how that works. Did you do a bit of bartending down there as well to – no, actually, to get some income. What's funny is I got a job bartending down there because I was running out of money. Um, because I went down there with some savings, but I hadn't planned on. I knew nothing about aviation. I mean zero. I knew I wanted to fly airplanes. I'm kind of smart. I can figure it out, kind of thing. And I'll go to school and learn. So I didn't. I really didn't do much research. I just kind of got up and went. And um, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know about little things like I needed a headset for the plane. Like, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know I needed uh, money for check rides, which were, you know, $400 cash a piece. I don't know how you do it over in uh, Australia, but over here, they're four or $500 cash, you know, and I didn't got to take eight of them, you know? So, like, I didn't have, I had living money, you know, for food and, you know, that kind of thing, but I didn't have drinking money, which I hadn't planned on. I didn't have drug money, which I hadn't planned on. And then I didn't have check ride money and uh, everything else associated with it. So... I needed to get a job and I needed, and I, I found a bartending job, but um, I actually never showed up on day one because I had a flight cancel and then it got pushed back and then it was a mechanical and it was, I just never made it. So what mm-hmm. I was doing once a month or so, I was coming back to New York and then bartending for a weekend and then going back down to Florida, you know, going back a thousand dollars or so I'm just being able to sustain. So yeah, you, because the money was that good. Yeah, it was, it was great. I could work for a weekend and make, a, you know, $1,500 cash and round trip was only $200. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, right. So I was able to, uh, so it's funny, I left to get away from it, but now I'm coming back every weekend and I'm, you know, submerged into it, immersed into it, I guess is the word. Um, yeah. So the ball kept rolling, you know? All right. All right. And then, uh, so you got through flight school, obviously. Uh, okay. With no issues or basic issues, little issues, you know, um, nothing major graduated passed, uh, got through it. And, um, I got a job. Uh, one of, one of my friends from down there was from Northern California. He was actually from Reno, Nevada. And he got a job flight instructing in Northern California, way up, way up past San Francisco in the North end of the Valley. And, uh, he called me up and said, Hey, I got a job out here if you want it. And, you know, I became, one of the things I always wanted to do was travel and live different places and kind of broaden my horizons. I said, let's do it. And I went out to California. And one of the reasons I went out there was he was, uh, he was definitely a big drinking buddy of mine. He was another one who probably had a little bit of a problem. Um, 
I haven't spoken to him in years, so I don't know how he's doing, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if he, if, if he showed up in the hymns program somewhere. But um, yeah. so I went out there because I knew it was just going to, the party was going to continue and it was going to be a good time. And that's what I did. I went out to Northern California and I moved in with him and I worked at his, uh, at his flight school. And that flight school was the first place I ever worked where I got uh, randomly drug tested. And, you know, something I don't even think I've mentioned before was that I was up until then, I was pretty much smoking pot on a daily basis. Um, so the way, the way my life kind of worked was that, um, you know, I would, I would drink and do drugs, um, like hard drugs, um, cocaine and ecstasy and stuff like that. Um, but not every day, you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't drinking every single day, but I was smoking pot every day. And, you know, I would get home from work when I was a teacher and, you know, sometimes I wasn't going out drinking, but I would sit on the couch and, you know, smoke a joint and watch TV and, you know, eat, eat pizza and junk food. And, uh, and that was it. Um, but when I did drink, I was drinking to blackout. I was drinking to get to that level of insanity, you know, um, to not remember to be a complete lunatic. But if I wasn't drinking, I was smoking pot. And so I got out there to California and now there was drug tests. I couldn't smoke pot anymore. And that's where my drinking really, uh, really took off. So I wasn't doing any drugs at all. I wasn't doing cocaine. I wasn't smoking pot. But now instead of like a normal day after work coming home and, you know, barbecuing and, and, and smoking a little bit, now I was stopping at a happy hour or I was picking up a case of beers or a bottle of vodka or, or a box of wine or something like that. And um, now I started drinking almost every day. And, yeah. you know, what, what I realized you know, not so long ago in sobriety was that, um, you know, I always thought I just like to get extremely intoxicated. But what I realized in sobriety, you know, seven, eight, nine years in sobriety was that I wasn't comfortable with myself. You know, I wasn't, I didn't like to be sober. I had to be some type of intoxicated um, because it was just, I don't know if it was easier for me or if I was more comfortable uh, what it was, but I needed to have some level of intoxication if I wasn't at work. And when I got to California, that's like I said, that's when the drinking really took off because now every day I was drinking and I wasn't doing anything else. And, and like I said, when I drank, I drank to, to blackout, like there was no stopping. Once I had that first beer, it was, uh, there was, there was no stopping whatsoever. And it usually accelerated at a rapid pace, you know, so I might pick up a six pack and come home and drink six beers. But then it's like, now I have to go to the bar. Now I have to go do some shots. Now we have to get a bottle vodka now and then i would drink to pass out every almost every night when i was out there and um yeah. you know that was i was out it was out there when i realized that, that my problem wasn't wasn't going away and that it was more of a problem than i realized yeah okay so the guy you who got you that job he was your boss is that right no you, you were, uh he was just the uh the other flight instructor was, that was there about a month longer than i was so he was, oh, okay. right. he was like more senior than I was, but the guy, the guy that ran the flight school, I don't even know what he was even doing in that business. I think he came from uh, Silicon Valley, you know, was a tech guy and decided to buy a, an FBO and right. just was a business guy, you know, had airplanes and rent. So you, you didn't see him or you, you, or you weren't accountable to him really? It was... Yeah, not really. No, we would, I would have my own set flight students and schedule the times and just show up when I needed to. I didn't actually have to be there. 
So yeah, and, right. and I could change the times to any time I wanted to. So if, uh, you know, I was a little hungover in the morning, it was nine o'clock, I would call and say, you know, we're going to switch that time to noon or, you know, it was, it was very, it was very easy to be completely um, out of control, so to speak. Yeah. So when you say you didn't drink, when, when you, when you weren't, um, intoxicated, you and for that one of a better phrase, you know, you were in that sort of normal state. Was that that was an uncomfortable state? You were saying you you weren't comfortable with yourself. You had to be high in order to to feel good, yeah, to feel you, okay. You know, so I don't I don't really know the answer to that because I never I never put any thought to it. You know, I never. Um, it never occurred to me, but like my free time. So here's the addiction, the, the, the addiction, you know, the addiction in my brain was that I was always thinking, where's the next drink? You know, where is, uh, you know, when I woke up in the morning, and had to work, you know, what I was thinking about is, well, am I going to go to happy hour or, you know, so this place has a pool table and they have a decent happy hour or, you know, it's a, not much going on today. So I can, always stop and get this. I could stop and get beers or wine or whatever. I didn't, I don't think I realized I was uncomfortable with myself, with my own thoughts. Um, and I don't even okay. know if that's a valid statement to say. It was, it was more like, that's what I did, you know? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that was so, what... so you didn't, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, so you didn't wake, you, you said you wake up in the morning and think, Oh, I could go to this bar or, or do that. You didn't, you didn't ever or very rarely wake up and thought I could either go to this bar or I won't go to any bar. It was just waking up and saying, which bar do I go to? Is that how it worked? What do you mean? Did I wake up and some days just start drinking and go to the bar? I did that plenty. Oh, yeah. I was just, I was just saying like some days. You, All the time. Well, most. Yeah, you, you didn't. You didn't say I've got a choice here. I, want, I either A, will not drink or oh, B, yeah. will go to the bar. Was just always uh, I'll I'll go to the bar. Yeah, there was, that, there, that was, there was uh, no choice. There was no thinking about it. There was no. Uh, I'll yeah, go right. To the gym today. Yeah. If you go for a run this afternoon, no, that was, it was that wasn't that wasn't what I was doing. You know, if, if I wasn't at work, I was drinking, and yeah, right. That right. was just that was who I was, and it was, and I could always be counted on to someone called up and said, "Hey, let's get a drink." Yeah, well, I'm already there, man. I'm already <laughs> I'm already five. Yeah. Down. go join the party. You know, it's just who yeah. I, and that was just, it was what I did, you know, with, with no really thought put into it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there you were, Northern California, um, off the weed and into the, <laughs> into the drinking. Uh, how long were you there for? I was out there for 10, uh, 10 months, I believe. Um, and you know, I got brought out. It, it wasn't, it's not, when I think about my time out in Northern California, I don't look back at it and say, oh, that was a wonderful time of my life. Um, you know, oh, I was okay. like 26, 27 years old. And I, I think back and it's just like a train wreck, you know, it's sort of, so I feel like it is. Um, so the guy that invited me out there, a buddy of mine, uh, wasn't, wasn't a very honest person. And, he, you know, he sold it to me as you're going to make, you know, $10,000 a month as a flight instructor out here. And I got out there and it was, there was no money to be made. It was very, uh, I, I was broke the whole time I was out there. And um, I actually got a job bartending out there as well. Why not? I was, I was, there wasn't much money to be made bartending in that little town either. But um, 
you know, I, I met a, uh, I met a woman and we started dating and, uh, it was a very toxic relationship to say the least. Uh, she was another alcoholic, you know, kind of attract similar people. And, uh, we drank, we drank the same, the same way. And, um, it was, uh, you know, a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing kind of thing. And, and it was out there, like, like she validated how I would drink, how I would drink, you know, she never, uh, she was older than me and had a lot of money and always had a full liquor cabinet and, you know, kind of showed me that it's okay to drink in the morning kind of thing. You know, I, whenever I did it before that, it was like to have a good time, but like, she showed me like, Hey, you know, if you don't want to throw one back and have a beer. And, and, uh, so we, we would get into like a lot of arguments out there and it was, it was out there when I was uh, renting a room in someone's house where I kind of like, but this is where my addiction like took off and it became like uh, something that was kind of out of control. So that was where it was in Northern California where I got to that point in my drinking where I would wake up in the middle of the night and in order to go back to sleep, I would have to, you know, take a big swig out of a bottle of vodka and, uh, you know, smoke a couple cigarettes to calm the nerves and then go back to sleep, you know, catch a little buzz in the middle of the night. That's where that started happening. So I, I liken it to like climbing a mountain. You know, leading up to that point, I was, I was, you know, ascending this, this, uh, this peak. And when I was out there, something happened when I was kind of teetering on the top of that mountain for a minute. And then I went down the other side and started descending. And that was when my drinking really started to take off. It's kind of like, you know, an avalanche or a, you know, a snowball getting bigger as it rolls down a hill. Um, I, I, I liken it to that. It's, it's kind of, um, that's that's what I think of when I look at it because, like I said, I started drinking in the middle of the night. That's when uh, I was drinking more to sustain than to really have a good time at that point. And I noticed it, and I and I saw it, and I was aware of it. You know, I'm uh, I'm a very kind of self aware person. I'm self aware of how I act around people, how um, how I present myself, um, and I noticed that there was something wrong, and that I was kind of out of control. And that's when I started to kind of kind of be a little nervous, you know. Yeah. Okay. And what about people around you? Were, well, other than your girlfriend, were people around you taking notice of this, or was there comments being made, or so? What did you not notice? The people around me was uh, I had the girlfriend. Whatever she didn't notice. Um, my buddy from the flight school, he was just as drunk as I was all the time. So that wasn't an issue. Um, but before I went out there, even when I was teaching, my sister had made comments to me that she thought I had a problem with drugs and alcohol. My parents had made comments to me. Um, my loved ones, my family members had made comments years past. So it, it, it was there in my mind, you know, that, that it could be, a legitimate issue you know but but still i wasn't uh it, it wasn't ready i wasn't ready to ask for help you know i wasn't I wasn't at that stage um it was uh it wasn't bad enough yet but i noticed something yeah, something yeah. was up and, yeah. I was, and then you you're in yeah you're in that environment uh, i know well for me as well when you that age there's there are people around my family as well and sister and so on that do make comment and so on. But then there's the people that, you know, the girlfriends and so on that 
support you normalize it and so yep. which way do you go of course you're going to go for the 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 you know the 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 avenue that makes you feel the best at the yeah, time the, well that's the yeah. resistance yeah yeah that's what i'm trying to say yeah. so yeah yeah <laughs> Um, all right, so you took off from Northern California back over to the east, or yeah, so I went there? back to New York. We got a, uh, I had to get out of there, and me and the, me and the toxic girlfriend were breaking up and getting back together, and that whole thing. And I, I said, enough of this. I need to make some money. I need to get out of here. I'm, I'm broke. My, my car's falling apart, and I got a flight instructor job back in New York on Long Island, and um, oh, okay, I moved back in with my parents. I was 27 years old at the time. Moved back in with them because I got this great flight instructing job. Um, but, uh, you know, again, now I, 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 I came along with me for the journey. You know, the, the problems, you know, my addiction and, and, and alcoholism was still with me. So I, when I came uh, back to New York, I brought it with me. But now I was living in my parents' house in a spare room in the basement. And I had to, uh, to kind of hide it more. You know, I couldn't just be this raging alcoholic with support. You know, I had to, I had to hide it more. And so it became a little more difficult. There was some challenges associated with that. Okay. Um, do you think you hit it very well? No, not, no, not at all. <laughs> all right. But well, you, not. you thought you were doing a reasonable job at the time, I suppose. So. I, I didn't hide yeah. it. Not one bit. Um, <laughs> um, no, that's what my mother started saying, like, you really got to tone it down. And my father, I, I you know, I, I believe he, you know, at times I've seen him have, uh, be drink to excess, uh, often. And he was telling me how, how bad it was, how, how bad I was. Okay. Across. So there was, there was a lot of people. And, um, and during this whole time, me and the, uh, toxic girlfriend from California, were, you know, on the phone and getting back together and breaking up and she's, she's rich. So she's flying out to see me all the time and getting hotel rooms and what yeah. doing. And it just continued. The insanity continued. Um, I was only at that job a short period of time before I got my first airline job. And um, it was with the regional airline. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure you guys have regionals out there, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar. Well, well, similarities. So, we, yeah. Press, probably. Going out into the country areas. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we got into the regional. And I was flying the Embraer 145, you know, which is, uh, you know, 50 seats, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, nice. Yeah, and I got, I got my first job um, during that time with American Eagle. And when I, uh, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but is that all right? No. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, no. It's, yeah, less work. It's good. You know, I just keep rambling. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> so I get this job, uh, I get this job with the regional and I had to, um, the way they were doing it over here for a while with all these regionals is they were expanding tremendously. And, um, you know, what they would do is they would hold these job fairs and you can go to these job fairs and there may be 10 airlines at them and you go and you drop your resume off at all of them and you kind of do a quick little on the spot interview. And, um, this one happened to be just for one airline and uh, probably about 200 people showed up and it was held over here in, in, uh, in Queens, New York. And, you know, this is like, a, this is where the drinking was, uh, was very prevalent in my life and, and was doing some damage, you know, and it was, it was affecting me greatly. And, 
before I went in for this, uh, this interview it was on a Saturday morning. Um, I had my last drink on, uh, Wednesday. Right. And why that's significant is because I knew that if I were to get this airline job, um, that I needed to be my sharpest and on my game and, uh, you know, not going there, you know, stuttering and, and exhausted looking and I needed to do my best. So I made a decision to have to not drink past Wednesday. And I did. I drank Wednesday. I don't, I don't remember if I got drunk or not. This is 20 years ago. Um, but I didn't drink Thursday and I didn't drink on Friday. And I showed up to this interview with a clear head and, um, you know, with the color back in my face and ironed clothes and I was there on time. And, um, then I got the job. I, I passed that part and, you know, got brought down for the simulator portion. Um, but regardless, I got that part. And, and the most significant part about that was how I knew that I needed to stop drinking days ahead of time. You know, I was only 27, 28 years old at the time. Um, but I had to stop days ahead of time. So I was, you know, mentally available for this interview. And um, when I left and they said, you know, welcome aboard. We're going to have you down for the simulator portion. I went out. I went to a buddy's apartment and I stopped and got a... Uh, a 1.75 liter bottle of Smirnoff. And I drank the entire bottle that night in celebration, whether I was drinking in celebration or whether I was drinking just to get drunk or whether I was, you know, making up for lost time, those whole two days where I didn't have a single drink, I managed to drink an entire uh, handle of vodka by myself. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that was from the Wednesday to the Saturday you made that, you must've been highly motivated to, to yeah. get that job i was. must have thought it was pretty important to you know that interview was very important in your life look it was it was so important i gave up two days of drinking in a row yeah right or well i'm uh well i think you know you've given up 11 years of drinking for this interview so i reckon that's pretty awesome there you go man now we're talking yeah no very good so when you um when you when that saturday came and and you had a few days off that would have been one of the rare times that you had, you know, two or three days off drinking in a row sort of thing. Did you did you start thinking, oh, well, when Saturday comes and, I, you know, if I nail this interview, I'll, maybe it's, you know, it's a good time to to stop drinking and, you know, this career will, might save me or that sort of thing? Or did you just think that's it, that that vodka, that's that's going to happen no matter what, you know? Oh, yeah, no, that sort was of, no matter what, you know, because one of the things I was looking for to the airline career was uh, going to all these exotic tropical late locations and uh, all these foreign countries and, you know, being, you know, the whole, what is it? Um, you know, the whole. Uh, yeah, that, that, that whole image that whole of. Lifestyle, that, that jet set lifestyle where it's, you know, it's a one big party across the globe. That's what I was looking for. You know, that's what I was yeah doing. yeah so so drinking and so on was just that that was all yeah there was, part of that I wasn't stopping that, I wasn't that, slowing down no no no, no. there was yeah. no plan of slowing down even though I knew that there was something there was no plan because now it was going to be really accepted you know once I yeah, got right. a job it was going to be uh you know I was going to meet my people you know that's that's why I yeah thought. okay and and how did that turn out did you did you meet some of your people <laughs> So in that in, in the industry, 
Well, I mean, before you stop drinking. I know we've met our people now, but uh, <laughs> um, know, the people we wanted to drink with and party with. So I drank on uh, a total of two overnights as an airline pilot. Um, I went down to, to new hire training and I barely squeaked through it because I was drinking like an animal. Now I had a hotel room, you know, I had my own hotel room in training and, uh, there was a bar across the street, a dirty little bar. And, uh, yeah, I, I squeaked through training, made it through barely. I did not put my all into it. I mean, even though I, you know, I worked to get there, um, you know, my addiction was taken over at this point. It was, you know, it was, uh, it, it really was taken over. You know, it was, it was, it was looming over my head and, and I was, you know, showing up late to, to ground school and, and stuff like that. And, um, so I made it out to the line and on, I drank on two overnights. One, I had an overnight in the Cleveland, Ohio, and I got a, uh, a fifth of vodka and drank it by myself in my hotel room. That was a uh, very glamorous. And then I, uh, another night. We went, uh, it was an overnight Washington, D.C. And uh, I went out with the with the captain, we went out and got a burger and had a couple beers and went back to the hotel and I was going to go to sleep. And, but I had a couple beers and now I needed to keep drinking. And I went, I went out and it must have been passed down or whatever time they stopped selling booze down there. And I guess it was Virginia where we were staying and I couldn't get any alcohol. I, could, I couldn't get anywhere. Like I couldn't get a beer anywhere. And, you know, it went through my mind to like go into, you know, the supermarket and just run out the door with a, with a case of beer. Like I'm an airline pilot, you know, I'm, and I'm considering robbing a supermarket to get a beer, you know? So I, uh, I just sat there in a hotel and, and smoked cigarettes pretty much. And until I was able to fall asleep until that, uh, that anxiety of not being able to get more alcohol went away. And those are the only two overnights that I, that I drank on. That was my, that is the extent of my jet setting alcohol, alcohol fueled glamorous lifestyle was uh, drinking by myself and uh, smoking cigarettes in, in the hotel room after drinking two beers. That was it. That's it. And then I got in trouble. And then the, yeah. Uh, okay. So, so two, two overnights and li living the dream. Living the dream. <laughs> Well, the, fir the first one, you were living the dream. The second one, you were sitting around smoking cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, so this is a – so, I mean, that just shows the insanity, you know, right? Just just right there, the, you know, the how, how the addiction had, had taken over, you know, how it's – I mean, it's it, I can't I can't sleep if I don't drink, you know? I wasn't able to sleep. It was I was uncomfortable. I was stressed out, you know? The captain probably had the two beers and a, and a burger and went to bed. And I'm sitting there uh, thinking about robbing a supermarket. You know, it's insanity. Um, yeah. And, and shortly thereafter is when I got in trouble. And um, I'll, I'll tell you that story now. This, this is a doozy of a story. Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, before you start this, I yeah. just want to say this is I, – I agree. I, I have heard you tell this story uh once in depth in detail before and it's it's it is a doozy so yeah <laughs> go go ahead well don't don't get ever don't get everyone listening too uh too excited i don't want to disappoint um what uh yeah so so during this time now that i'm uh 
now that I'm with uh, now that I'm with an airline, we have cash privileges in in the United States, and um, I, th- I think we're the, I think we talked about this. We're the only country that has this, and what the cash privileges? It's crew. I don't even know if I know the acronym, but it's crew access security system or something like that. And what that allows us to do is any other airline that's in the cast system, which is pretty much all U.S. carriers, you know, Delta, American, United, JetBlue, uh, Southwest, uh, any any Alaskan, Hawaiian, any airline that's based in the United States, I can just go up to that ticket counter with my ID and request a jump seat. And if there's room in the cockpit, if there's no other, you know, their own airline personnel in the, in the cockpit jump seat, uh, I'll be granted the jump seat. And if there's room in the back, they'll give me a seat in the back. Um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I don't even know how they came up with it to allow each airline to allow other airlines pilots just access to their cockpits, but it's, it's a great, it's a great tool. It's a great way to travel. It's, um, you know, we're even allowed to jump seat on FedEx and and UPS and DHL and, and all the other carriers that are, you know, cargo carriers as well. Um, so now I have that and, and me and the toxic girlfriend out in California are still arguing and still uh, getting back together. And, you know, that whole that whole mess of a relationship that so many of us are familiar with. And um, so on my days off, even if I have two or three days off, I'm flying to California and spend a couple of days and coming back. And, you know, it's a it's a long flight. It's six hours. So it's I'm spending most of the time in the air getting there and getting drunk and then coming home. And it was a typical uh typical weekend visit out there and i went out to california and we got rip roaring drunk and played golf or whatever we did i don't play golf anymore since i sobered up i don't have the patience for it i figured i would just throw that out there but um when i was driving a golf cart nice and drunk smoking big fat cigar it was uh <laughs> golf was great um and she played and we get absolutely hammered and we got uh in a super huge fight one night you know probably over nothing and um i left I took uh, a whole, we'd been drinking all day and you know, I left her house and took all the beers in the fridge with me because I, I think I paid for them or I stole them. Who cares? Whatever. It doesn't really matter. I took them all and went to, uh, went to some crappy hotel by the airport and she lived in Redding, California, which was it's about an hour flight north of San Francisco. And, you know, you fly up there in a little, you know, puddle jumper, like a Cessna caravan or a, uh, you know, Embraer, I believe, 120 to Brasilia. Either way, um, small little regional service. And I got super plastered at the hotel that night and drank my uh, sorrows away or celebrated or whatever I was doing. And the next day I woke up and there was a little bit of vodka left. So I drank that because, you know, you can't smell vodka on people's breath, right? Isn't that the way the old uh, the old rumor was for the alcoholics? Can't smell vodka. Yeah. Um, regardless, anyway, I go to the airport and... The flight I needed to get to San Francisco was delayed by however long. So by the time I finally got to San Francisco, um, I had missed the last flights to the East Coast. And the way it works from uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast, like San Francisco or L.A. to New York, you know, they, they depart all day. But there's a certain window of time where it might be, uh, you know, 5 or 6 p.m. West Coast time where they don't depart again until 11 o'clock or, or midnight. And um, the reason they do that is because they'd be landing in New York at, you know, three in the morning. So there's, there's like a window and I missed, I missed the last flight and being, you know, I was a raging alcoholic and um, I was already super hungover, you know, to the point of still probably, probably still drunk. Um, 
I went out in San Francisco and uh, I proceeded to get blackout drunk. Um, I hardly remember any of, I hardly even remember going into San Francisco. Um, I mean, you know, it's 15, how long ago was that? 13 years ago or something. Um, you know, it's, it's a long time, but even even right afterwards, I didn't remember it. So I was pretty much in, in a blackout state at this point. And um, so I went to go kill some time and I had never been to San Francisco before. So I hopped on the subway, somehow figured that out. And I went, I went into the city. And I remember what I did is I went and I first got, um, I went into a, uh, like a deli or a little convenience store and they sold the little airplane bottles and I got a couple of those and put them in a little bottle of orange juice so I could walk around and drink my orange juice, my screwdriver. And um, I, I don't remember anything after that. The last thing I remember, well, it's not true. There's, there's kind of some fogginess. Anyway, the next thing I really remember is that I'm doing a walk around on an airplane. Um, I'm actually outside of an airplane. I'm pre-flighting. And um, this, this, uh, this guy comes over to me, who was the first officer of, of this airplane. And uh, he says to me, he comes up and he says something like, you know, who the hell are you? What are you doing? And I, and I uh, said to him, probably not so nicely, like, mind your own business. I probably use some real nice, colorful language. And uh, I, remember, I remember him storming off and going underneath the airplane and walking up to the Jeopardy. And like I, to this day, I remember the guy's face. I remember what he looks like. I remember how high, how tall he was. Um, I remember the whole thing about this guy. Um, but anyway, I continue doing what I'm doing, and I do, uh, and I continue pre-flighting this airplane. Um, so you, you, so you had a uniform on, and oh yeah, yeah, I was, I was in uniform this whole time. I was, I was in uniform <laughs> uh, since San Francisco. Um, which, so anyway. So I'll, I go out there and um, I finish pre-flying the airplane after I tell the FO to, you know, go away. And um, I'm, I'm fast forwarding here a little bit and I'll come back to it. I get uh, the next thing I know, I'm being asked to leave the airplane. And I go fall asleep on a chair somewhere. What, what turns out, the reason I got asked to leave that airplane is because I was pre-flighting an airplane um, for an airline I didn't work for. Um, for an airplane, I didn't fly in a city that I was not based in. So I had become delusionally drunk. And it was, this it happened a few times, you know, and this is, <laughs> this, this is the, the worst delusionally drunk. So what, what ended up happening to me is I wasn't even in New York. I was in Chicago at the time. And I was so, uh, I was so new with the airlines. I had never even been to Chicago. So not only had I pre-flighted the wrong airplane for the wrong airline and the wrong terminal and the wrong city, um, I had also caused quite a stir in the terminal asking passengers what city I was in. So I am an airline pilot in Chicago, um, asking passengers what city I'm in, you know, and it's, I mean, that's a rational thing to do. If you don't know where you are, ask people where you are, right? Um, you know, there's no signs in Chicago that say, you know, you're in Chicago, you know, so I just, they just assume everyone, yeah, not, not that you saw anyway, <laughs> everyone knows where they are when they're in, when they're in the airport, most, most rational, especially the pilots, you know? So what I must've done is because I'd never been there, you know, the, it was an American airlines terminal and 
you, you, it overlooks the, the skyline of Chicago, big Sears Tower and all that stuff. And I must have been looking at that like, man, I, I know that's not New York. <laughs> not really certain, but I know it's not home. You know, I've never seen this, uh, this view, viewpoint before. So I was going around asking people what city I was in. And those people, in turn, were going and finding the TSA and, um, you know, airport police and security and the airlines and saying, you got a drunk pilot, doesn't know where he is. And um, so in addition to me <laughs> um, walking around the airplane, looking for things to write up, uh, which I don't think I found anything to write up. Um, I don't no, think that's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe I was just being sloppy. Maybe there was, maybe I missed something, but um, <laughs> you know, besides mm -hmm. with doing that and, and with uh, stumbling around drunkenly uh, making friends in the airport, everyone was looking for me. I mean, everybody was looking for me. And I remember trying to get on a flight because, you know, like I said, we can just jump seat. We just show up at the counter. I remember trying to get on the flight and the guy said, you sound, you smell like alcohol. You really got to go hide. You, you got to go, you got to go sleep it off. So I remember going and finding some chair, you know, in the terminal, kind of in a corner. And, and I woke up a few hours later and I went to go get on another flight. I had to work that afternoon. I was on, I was on call. I was on reserve in New York. Um, you know, by now the alcohol is kind of wearing off. I'm getting my, my faculties back and I have to go to work <laughs> and the alcohol is wearing off. I have to go to work. And, um, I still have to fly to uh, to New York, and I go to another another gate and I say, "Hey, I'd like to list for this flight to Guardi." You guys said, "Sure," and I give him my ID and he types something in, and he says, uh, "Hold on one second. And he makes a phone call and he says, uh, "Hold on, right now, someone wants to come wants to come speak to you." I, I didn't think anything of it, and right then these two gentlemen show up, one with an American Airlines badge and another one with an American Eagle badge, and American Eagle was, was who I worked for at the time. And they said, uh, you need to come with me right now. And I said, I don't know who you are. Um, you know, where are we going? And what ended up happening? So here's here's my first ever introduction to the HEMS program, which I never knew anything about. Um, I, uh, you know, we I, apparently they showed us a video of it when I was in new hire training, which I just, you know, didn't pay attention to and didn't even watch. Maybe I wasn't even there. Who knows? Um, but I knew nothing about it. And um, it's funny, my, my uncle was recovering. Um, he was a recovering addict. He was a dock builder and he, he built docks and, you know, he, he uh, built all like the pilings in, in the East River around like the World Trade Center and all around Manhattan and the Brooklyn Bridge and all that stuff. And, and he hurt his back and, and he got addicted to build. And he at one point told me that I needed to go into rehab. And, um, you know, I said, well, I'm a brand new pilot with an airline. How do I tell him I need to go into rehab? And he said, yeah, I guess you really can't, but you know, you need to, uh, you need to do something. So I'm, I'm kind of back and going back and forth a little bit here, but, um, so I went to a couple of AA meetings after my uncle told me that. And, you know, I, I heard some similarities, but it wasn't the put, I didn't need to go, you know, I can do this on my own kind of thing. Um, so anyway, fast forward again, back to the, uh, back to the terminal and these two guys come with me and they said, uh, you need to come with me right now. And I said, I don't even know who you are. I'm not going anywhere. And the one guy was, uh, the head of the, uh, the pilot assistance program for the APA, which was American airlines pilot. Union. And the other guy was, um, the chief pilot for my airline. And this guy, Dave, he had a phone. He handed the phone to me. He said, this is your crew schedule and tell them that you're sick. And I said, I'm not sick. I said, I'm, what, what are we doing? I'm not sick. And he said, listen, 
Tell them that you're sick. That's all you have to say is I'm sick. They know that you're going to be talking to them. Tell them that you're sick. Or if you don't, you're going to end up on the news because the news vans are always looking for you. So, you know, I mean, I'm a rational person and I was, you know, coming off a major bender, but I knew that there was something wrong with that situation. So I just said, yeah, I'm sick. And they said, okay, we're removing from your schedule. And they, uh, the guys took me downstairs into the American Airlines chief pilot's office and sat me down in the, uh, in the chief pilot's office and said, we'll be back in a couple hours. And unbeknownst to me, what, uh, the way, the way many airlines do this, do their HIMSS program is um, in, in normal times, non-pandemic times, is um, once a month, they have a meeting for about two hours in, in each pilot base. And in that pilot base will be the pilots from that base that are in the HIMSS program, the chief pilots, the uh, employee, per, employee assistance program, personnel managers, uh, whoever from the company that writes the reports, maybe the AMEs, the doctors, and... Um, the people from the union, the peer monitors, the sponsors, the uh, the volunteers, they're all just meeting. Usually lasts about anywhere from, you know, an hour to three hours. And um, that's where we fulfill the requirements for the uh, for the FAA. And um, that's where we get the doctor's letters and the peer letters and the chief pilot's letters. And it's a big meetup with all the pilots. And um, that meeting was going on right then at that time in Chicago, right underneath in, in the crew lounge where I was stumbling around upstairs. That meeting was okay. going two hour window for the whole entire month. And it happened to be right. Yeah. You know, what, and, a, what a amazing coincidence. Eh? Well, it, yeah, you can say coincidence, right? But well, what's a coincidence? Coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. So I don't know. I happen to be in the right place at the right time. So these guys take me downstairs and I still don't know what's going on. I'm sitting in the chief pilot's office and they say, we'll come back in a little bit. And they uh, they come back in and it's it's that guy Dave. It's my chief pilot. It's uh, the American Airlines chief pilot, and it's the guy that's the head of the employee assistance program for American Airlines. And thank God, you know, American Airlines is a massive, massive company with a massive HR department, and they understand disease of addiction. You can't terminate someone for you know having a qualifying illness, which addiction is. Uh, what I had going against me was that I was a pilot and I was still on probation. I'd only been with the airline for about three months. And the way we do probation over here is it's a year from the date of hire. And, um, you know, if you get in any trouble, you're gone. They just, they just terminate you, you know, no questions asked. And there's nothing in you that the union can even do to save your job. But what they did is they came down and, and like I said, I still don't know what's going on. And, and his name was Rick. And Rick said to me, he said, you know, were you drinking last night? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, are you still feeling the effects now? And I said, yes. And he said, you think you have a drinking problem? And, um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had anyone that I didn't know ask me that question before. And I'm looking around the room. I don't know any of these people. And I don't know where the hell I am. I don't, I mean, I don't even know what clothes, like, I mean, I have two different colored socks on. Like, I was just a mess, like, unshaven. And when he asked me, do you think you have a drinker problem? I said, yeah, I do. I, I know I have a drinker problem. You know, I got honest for that first time with that rigorous, brutal honesty. And he said, do you want, would you like to get some help? And I said, yeah, I think I do. I think I'm ready to get some help. And he said, we can get you into a, into a treatment, a 28-day rehab. Would you be willing to go? And I said, yes. I said, I think I need to go. And right then, when he said that, it brought me back to the conversation I had with my uncle where my uncle had told me, you need to go to rehab. And I told him that I couldn't. And when this guy said that to me, so like I wasn't even 
I wasn't even worried about losing my job at this point. I wasn't worried about any of it. It was like, you know, I'm in trouble here, you know, and it's now it's like real trouble. But the guys tell me the news vans are looking for me, that Chicago police are running around the airport looking for the drunk pilot. And now I'm in this weird office somewhere with these people I've never met asking me about drinking. And uh, it just hit me. And I said, yeah, I, I need help. Like, I need help. and I'm willing to get help. And he said, all right, we can. Um, he said, you have two options. He said, we can get you down there today, down to Texas today to go to treatment. So I was going to Texas. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, he said, or you can go back to New York, gather some belongings and, uh, and, and fly back. And um, my luggage, by the way, I didn't have any luggage. <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> Somewhere in the journey from the West Coast to Chicago, maybe I left it outside the airplane. I was pre-flying. I have no idea. But um, the luggage was gone. And um, I just said, you know what? Let's go today. You know, just just put me on a plane. I'll go today. Because even then, um, you know, I was still intoxicated. I mean, I, I didn't get to rehab for another eight hours. And I, I still blew a 0.08 blood alcohol content. So I was probably 0.20 blood alcohol at the time. I even knew right then that if I went back to New York, it was a good chance I would never get another plane to go down to rehab. So I just went. I went down with them and, and they mm -hmm. got Rick, the AP manager, and Dave, the guy that brought me down that made me call crew scheduling. Um, they were flying to Dallas, so they flew down with me. They uh, they took me to a, a store, bought me some uh, some underwear and a toothbrush, and uh, drove me over to to rehab. And that was uh, yeah, well. and I still didn't even know whether or not um, I was going to keep my job. I had no idea. I didn't care though. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't care. I was, yeah, right. it was, I was beaten up. I was beaten up. You know, and it was. Uh, I had to get. I had to get out of that hole, man. I was just digging, 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 and I finally saw a way out, and I just kind of grabbed at it. You know, so. So I'm, when, um, yeah. So when they asked you, uh, did they say, "Do you think you've got a problem, and do you need help?" Is that is that what they were saying in that conversation initially when they they yeah. Yeah. So when 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 you said uh, yes, I do, <laughs> that would have been was that the first time you admitted that to yourself and to others that you thought that you did have a like that when you verbalised it. Yeah. Is that the first time you said it out loud? I, you know, I think you know there had been many times I had the argument with the girlfriends or the, or the or the family that you know I got a drinking problem and I don't have a problem you have a problem you would drink if you had to deal with what I you know that kind of thing but I think it was the first time I ever like I surrendered I kind of verbally surrendered you know I'm in a group yeah. of, I'm in a group of men that I've never seen before in my life ask me if I have a drinking problem and the answer is yes the funny part about that story was um like I said I was a pilot on probation and I found out later on much later on, a year later, whatever, um, that if I had answered any of those questions differently than I had answered them that day, that they were going to escort me upstairs and, and say, good luck. You know, I would have lost my job on the spot. They would have terminated me because I was a pilot yeah. patient and I was absolutely drunk. But being the fact that I admitted I had a problem with alcohol and I wanted help, they extended a hand to help me. Yeah, right. that, that moment of of uh, sanity amongst all that insanity that was going on yep. you know, that time. So it, how did it feel when you, did you feel good about saying it or? Um... Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It was probably in some type of state of shock. Um, I don't know if it felt good. I don't know if it was a weight off my shoulders. I don't, I don't really have the answer. You know, one, I was still kind of intoxicated. <laughs> um, yeah, right. 
but uh you know I, I know i sat on that plane of that uh of that md80 i had a window seat and i had to look out the window the whole time because you know i had tears coming down my eyes all the time just like what the hell what is going on <laughs> what what is it i'm actually doing here like what kind of situation have i gotten myself into you know and um that's what was going through my head the whole time so it was, it was just like bewildered confused uh maybe maybe some weight off my shoulders i don't i really don't even have an answer yeah, right. yeah. depressed oh yeah. really no everything yeah. okay. old giant swirl of emotions yeah. so you got through it you got through the 28 days graduated graduated with uh with flying colors um the whole time, the whole time i was down there i never once uh admitted to doing any type of drugs i just uh admitted to having a drinking problem i figured uh the airline doesn't need to know that i had a problem with drugs i'll keep that to myself and um you know i'm uh I can be charismatic at times and, and I knew what the counselors wanted to hear and I told them everything they wanted to hear. And the funny thing is I was done with drinking. You know, I was, I was done. <laughs> I did not want to drink ever again because it, it really beat me down that much. Um, but the thought of, you know, maybe partying, maybe doing a little recreational drugs here and there, that was still in my mind. That was still there. Um, so I, I cooperated and graduated and I told them what they wanted to hear. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I did the homework that they gave me, you know, the, the steps, they kind of introduce you to the first five steps at that rehab. And I, I did the homework quote unquote that they asked of me. And, um, I went back to New York back with my parents and, uh, I was out of work for a little bit cause you know, we surrendered our medical when we go into the M's program and I was driving, uh, I was driving a, uh, like a Lincoln town car to like an air, um, like a limo kind of, you know, yeah, most, right. most yep. people going to and from the airport. Um, and I was driving one of them and I was going to some meetings and I was getting involved. Kind of, kind of, sort of getting involved. I got myself a sponsor. Um, and then I started doing, uh, I started doing drugs again. You know, so I was hanging out with the same people doing the same thing. Nothing had really changed except now I didn't have a job. Uh, I had a different job. Um, and I was doing the airline requirements, but I kind of immediately figured out about the random drug testing when that was going to happen. And I knew that, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, they weren't calling you for a drug test. So if I went out on a Friday, when I hung out with some friends that might've been, uh, you know, might've been doing drugs or whatever that, that I could do a little cocaine and it would be totally out of my system by Monday morning. So that's what I was doing, you know, and immediately it led me to, uh, I don't know if you've ever done cocaine. I'm sure some of the, anybody that's listening may have, I'm sure someone has, um, I know I'm not the only one, um, yeah. but, uh, it's, it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to do that and not drink, you know? So I did it a couple of yeah, times yeah. visible. Yeah. And then afterwards it was like, uh, you know what? I'll just drink just to come down. Just to kind of make the come down a little easier, a little less painful. Um, yeah. and then it got to the point where it was like, you know, I kind of feel like doing drugs. But I don't really have the money. So I'll just drink. I was going to do them anyway. So I might as well just have a couple of beers and, and then my alcohol just, you know, took off again, skyrocketed, mm -hmm. made up for lost time. You know, it was, uh, my disease was doing push-ups the whole time, getting stronger while I wasn't drinking. And, uh, then I started doing weird things. I started, um, you know, getting hotel rooms by myself and some like dirty $30 night hotel room. I would just go stay there and, and just get completely drunk. So I was living with my parents at the time. I couldn't let them know I was drinking. Um, uh, 
so I'm doing that. I, I'm driving around with a bottle of vodka in my trunk. You know, uh, I figured if it was in the trunk and I got pulled over by the police, they couldn't search the trunk without a warrant. Whether that's even real or not, I have no idea, but that's what I told myself. So if I had a 30-minute car ride, I would stop twice and take a swig out of the bottle in the open trunk on the side of the highway. Like, I was doing psychotic, crazy things. And eventually, I got caught in a drug test. Um, I came up hot for a drug test. And um, they said, we'll give you one more chance. We'll give you one more treatment. This one's it, and you're paying for this one. So I took this... uh, I took this drug test in one of our monthly meetings and, um, and I knew it was positive and I was just waiting for the phone call and the phone call came and it was the doctor and he said, you tested positive. Did you drink? And I said, yes. And he said, um, you know, we're going to give you a, we're going to talk about what to do with you. And we'll be in touch. So that night this is before they offered me the second treatment. Um, that night, I, uh, I said, you know, I'm just going to have one last one last hurrah, one last party. Um, do it right this time because I'm going to clean up tomorrow, you know. Um, so that's what I did. I went and got, you know, another bottle of a bottle of vodka. I guess my drink of choice at the time was vodka. Vodka and Heineken. And um, I went to another little crappy hotel room. And uh, I proceeded to drink myself into a stupor. And I remember hardly any of it, you know, blacked out immediately. Um, but I started making phone calls and I don't remember any of this. And I called my sponsor who was another airline pilot. And I called some people from rehab and I called the ex-girlfriend and I called anybody that would listen really. And I don't even know what I was telling them. I have no idea, but I was calling everyone. And um, I called my sponsor, uh, Tony at the time. And somehow he had already been in touch with my parents. My parents had called him because an ex-girlfriend called my parents and said, Billy was in a hotel room and worried about him. So they came and got me. They showed up there and Tony showed up at this hotel. And um, when they got there, Tony said, you know, this, this guy, he can't even sleep this one off. We have to get him to a detox because um, I was that insanely drunk. And they brought me to a detox and um, they gave me a breathalyzer upon walking in. It was a non-medical detox. And um, I blew a 0.31. And um, the funny thing, I was, I was walking and talking, and I kind of remember that. Um, and I blew a 0.31. I mean, how, how much more insanely drunk have I been on those nights that I don't remember a single thing and, I'm, and I can't walk? You know, I blew a 3-1 yeah, after yeah. the conversation. You know, but you they could die at 3-1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they say. And, uh, you know, I, I know I've been much drunker than that many times. Um, but that's what they said. They said, this is a non-medical detox. We can't keep him here. He's, his alcohol content is too high. We have to send him to a hospital. So they sent me to a hospital and I was in the emergency room waiting to get admitted. And I don't know how it works over in Australia, but, uh, it's, it's quite an ordeal when you go to the emergency room here, it takes forever. You know, so I'm sitting in this place. Yeah, same. It can be like that here too. Yeah. Yeah, Like 12, 24 hours to even get admitted, you know, just sitting in in the emergency room. And um, the way the beds were lined up, I was sitting next to it. There was this kid, you know, uh, a kid, maybe 10 years old, maybe even younger. I don't even know. Um, And he was in the hospital bed. And I was was chatting up with his mother, having a conversation with his mom. And 
And I remember saying, you know, what is, you know, what's wrong with him? And she said he was sick. I don't know. I don't remember what it was, cancer or something. He, he was sick. The kid was like really, really sick, you know, in the hospital. Parents are worried. And she said to me, she said, what are you here for? I said, I'm here for some alcohol because I drank too much last night. And, you know, I'm telling this to someone who's in there because they're like, they're little boys in the hospital. They're scared he's going to die. And then here I am, a grown man who's just drinking himself, drinking too much, you know? And I remember feeling, feeling so small, like so, like so weak and pathetic at that moment, you know? You know, we can make the argument all day long that alcohol is disease, legitimate, it's a mental health issue. And I agree with that. It really is because nobody wakes up and says, I want to be an alcoholic that drinks myself to death. Nobody says that. Um, so it is a legitimate disease, but it's not like cancer in a kid. You know, it's not it's not even close to on the same level of that. And, uh, you know, that kid didn't ask for didn't ask for the for the disease i didn't ask for alcoholism but i sure as hell went to the store and bought the booze you know so i remember feeling like like such a dirtbag and you know the doctor came over eventually and the doctor showed up and he said um you know i, I was a happy drunk or i was in a good mood even in situations like that he said yeah i want to introduce myself my name is dr bob and i said oh, i gotta be kidding me dr bob i said you know one of the founders of aa is my is my detox doctor and uh I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson. Yeah, I do. Yep. Yep. I don't know if the doctor didn't get the joke or if he just wasn't amused at the time, you know, but he didn't laugh. I thought it was funny. But um, yeah. he then asked me if I was trying to kill myself. He said, so, you know, you drank to this level, looking at his charts, uh, were you suicidal? Were you trying to take your life? Said, no. I was, just, I was just drinking. Like, <laughs> I was just drinking in a hotel you know, and trying to be suicidal. And he said, well, this, this high of alcohol content, we, we get this in a lot of suicides. And it was like, shit. Okay. Now it's, uh, now, now the medical community thinks I'm trying to kill myself when I'm not trying to kill myself. Like, so that, and the mixture of, of the mom and the sick kid and just a matter of a short period of time together, like really was, a was a slap to the face, you know? And, um, I ended up, I stayed there for a few days and they detoxed me. And I, I don't really remember that because they were really pumping full of Librium and Ativan and all this other stuff. Um, when I got out of there, I, I spoke with, that's when I spoke with the, uh, with the doctor from my airline. He said, we'll offer you one more chance, but, but you're paying for it if you want it. And I took it and I went back down to treatment that afternoon. And um, mm -hmm. my sponsor, Tony, who also worked uh, at my company, Flew with me from New York to Texas, rented a car, dropped me off. But he wanted to see me get there. He didn't think I was going to make it. And then he's probably yeah. right. You know, I was probably going to maybe stop and get a drink for the way. And who knows? You know, so this guy literally walked me. Both times I went to treatment, I was walked in the front door by other airline pilots. That was absolutely yeah. I think it's amazing now at the time I took advantage of it, you know. Yeah. Oh, what a, what a day in your life there with that that young boy uh, right next to you and then the doctor saying that thing about uh, and you you interpreted what the doctor said about uh, you know people that drink at these these levels are often trying to kill themselves and you must have been thinking well who's right you were saying no I'm just having a good time and you I guess you were thinking well who's right there me or them <laughs> sort exactly. of thing it must have really rattled you. I, 
it, it did. And you know, it's, I had already been to a 28 day inpatient. So I've had the, uh, some education on, you know, besides the street education I gave myself, I had the real education from the treatment center. And, um, you know, the whole time I was drinking, I was lying to everyone. And, you know, one of the things they say in Texas is, you know, one of their little sayings is, how's it go? It's like, there's, uh, nothing worse than having a head full of AA and a belly full of booze, you know? And, and so I'd had this guilt that I'm trying to do to say anything, but at the same time, I'm complete raging alcoholic. And it was like, you know, mm. the good cop and the bad cop and the angel and the devil yeah. on one shoulder. And, you know, that was, that was my life at that point. You know, yeah, tearing you, tearing yeah. you into two different directions. So. Yeah. And it's like the only way, the only way out of this is to stop drinking. Like that's the only way I can get out of this jam again. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no, uh, there's no other way. And, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you got back from, that was Texas again, the same place. Yeah. I went, the, to, the the second time. Went, went to the same uh, treatment center twice. And yeah, uh, right. when I was down there the second time, um, you know, I had a little bit of a revelation, you know, it's, what am I going to do different when I go home this time? And it's like, well, I'm going to go to more meetings. I'm going to get involved with AA more. You know, that's all fine and dandy, but what am I, what am I going to do different? You know, I'm going home to live with my parents where I don't want to live. I'm 28 years old, living with my parents, feel like a loser as it is. Um, I don't really have a job. I can get that taxi driving job back, but I'm not flying. The only people I really know are other alcoholics and drug addicts. You know, there's only so much time I could spend with my sister and her husband. You know, I can't rely on them. And it's like, what am I going to do when I get back? And and I don't know if, if I mentioned it or if someone else came up with it, but I finally decided to move down to Texas, right? Um, so that's where my company was based. And the reason I chose that was because now I've been to rehab twice in the span of six months. And I knew some sober people from the first rehab and the second rehab, which... Fast forward to now, I'm the only one out of any of them that's still sober. Many of them have long since died, too. Um, mm. But I'm the only one that's still sober. And there was the Birds of a Feather group, which uh, a lot of the pilots are familiar with. And the Birds of a Feather group in um, DFW, Dallas, Texas, the, the West Nest, they have two two birds' nests. Um, that's That was became my home group. And every week when I was in rehab, both times, somebody would drive. And pick up all the pilots that were in rehab and take them to the bird meeting. We'd all go off for dinner and then we'd go to the bird meeting. And it was uh, really supportive. And the the thought came across my mind, or however it got presented to me, that maybe it'd be a good time to move to Texas. Come down here, you can live for, I can get a really cheap apartment. Um, I can get a job making minimum wage and still be able to survive, something I couldn't do in New York. Um, I will have the support of the the DFW bird's nest. I could go to my aftercare outpatient meetings right there at the treatment center with a bunch of pilots be part of a pilot's group. And um, I can really get involved in AA and just really just get focused. And that's what I did. So I went back to New York and I got, uh, you know, worked for a, a week or two and just saved some money real quick and uh, enough for the car ride down to Texas. And that's what I did. I packed the car and went down to Texas and I got a, I got a, I rented a room in, the, in a, in a basically a sober house it wasn't a sober mm -hmm. house but it was like airline employee and there was no alcohol allowed in the house and it was actually owned 
by a sober American Airlines pilot. So he uh, he gave me a deal and got oh, me. Yeah. I was able to get on my mm. feet and I got involved and I got uh, involved mm-hmm. and I was where I lived was right by the rehab center that I went to. So I would go hang out at the rehab and, you know, afternoons and, uh, you know, at nighttime I'd go hang out there and play volleyball with the people in rehab and hang out and smoke cigarettes. And, you know, they all looked up to me because I had, you know, two months sober, you know, so wow, this guy's got yeah. two months. Holy cow. Yeah. Wisdom from him. Um, you know, so what I would do is I would go there and I was designated by the birds group to be the guy that pick up all the guys in rehab and bring them to the birds meeting. Yeah, good. So now every week, that Thursday afternoon, I'd go over there and you know four o'clock, pick these guys up, take them out to dinner, and then take them to the take them to the hangar for the birds meeting. And it, it I kind of like had a purpose now, you know. It's and I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't coming up with these ideas on my own. People were like, "You're the guy that's going to pick people up from rehab." You're going to chair the meeting next <laughs> day. You're yeah, right. yeah. like, okay, I'll do that. But it's, they made me do things. And I got responsible. And there was something that, you know, that I learned early on from my sponsor, um, my sponsor down there was, uh, when anybody, uh, when anybody asks you to be of service, if you don't have a valid excuse, you have to do it. And so when yeah, they, yeah. you're the guy picking them up and it's like, Oh, come on. Really? And they're like, are you working tonight? No. Okay. So what's the problem? What's the, why, what's the issue? Okay. I'll be there on Thursday, you know? And that's what happened. And I started becoming accountable and, uh, um, what's the other word? Responsible. I started becoming responsible and accountable. Imagine that. All these new things that, yeah, all that, that's just mate. that, that's sensational that all the, the stars really aligned for you, didn't they? That, you know, one, one, one thing led to the next and to the next and ended up in, in Dallas and having that support, support people telling, you know, voluntelling you to do all these things. And voluntold, man. So you, yeah, voluntold. You know, what, what, uh, and you've continued that. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, what you're saying about the stars aligning and all that stuff, it's, uh, I don't know if anyone else has this experience with their journey, but, it, you know, like my journey in sobriety, like I almost feel like I kind of cheated, you know, getting sober. Like, I don't know if it's the right way to feel, but. Like, I feel like, like I didn't have to do much. All I had to do was not drink, you know, that's it. And everything else kind of, it feels like I handed it to me. Like you're my first sponsor in, in Texas I said, Hey, do you have a sponsor? And I said, Nope. And he said, well, you're going to call me every day until you have one. And, and I called the guy every day and he was my sponsor for seven years, you know, and they made me chair meetings and, and all this stuff. Like they, like, it just kind of seemed like everything got like handed to me in sobriety. And I, and I wonder if that's everyone's journey, you know, or if it was just mine because I was, because I was willing, you know, uh, yeah, it, it didn't come easy. I had a, I had a fight for it, but looking back on it, it seems like it was just such like, uh, like, like sobriety was handed to me. I just had to want it, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. No, that's, that's a, a great way of looking at it. You, you've done a lot of the hard work and I guess that philosophy that you've got that, you know, you, there's unless you've got a really serious excuse for not volunteering or accepting, you know, if someone's asking if you know you can be their sponsor and so on, you you just you do it. You've got to do it. That's that's your ethic now, and yeah. and that that continues today, doesn't it? I mean, you're the the vice chair of 
hymns in the US and you're the chair of JetBlue yep. as well, the hymns chair of uh, JetBlue. You, you run an AA yep. group. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess some of those things you, you probably thought, ah, oh, I'd rather be, you know, you've, you've told me that you've since sobriety you've learnt to surf and I guess occasionally you think, oh, I'd rather be, you know, maybe if I had a couple of days I could piss off down to Puerto Rico and, and yeah. do that. But oh, I've got this bloody AA or birds or hymns commitment and and that's what you do. So that's that's fantastic. It is, man. You know, it's uh it keeps me busy. It definitely does. You know, during this whole past pandemic, it uh you know, like we weren't working. I wasn't working. I wasn't flying. Um but the AA meeting that we started, which uh I don't even like to take credit for it. I mean, I was the one that I pay for the Zoom account. But uh, a friend of mine from from here in Manhattan, he said, Hey, you know, people all across the country want to start a Zoom meeting, you know? And uh that was when Zoom was first really people were starting to do it when you know countries and cities were shutting down. And um I said, Yeah, let's do it. And so we started up and every day at 10 a.m. East Coast time, it's it's uh it's been going off for over a year now. It's been like a year and a week. Every single day, we have not missed a day. I mean, I've missed days. You know, everyone else has missed days, but the meeting has taken the on. The meeting has, yeah, has always gone ahead. Yeah. There's a different chairperson for every day of the week, and there's a different uh, topic for every chairperson, and uh, it's there every every single day. And uh, you know, some meetings there's only five people, other meetings there's twenty. You know, it, at the height of the pandemic, yeah. forty five one day. So it's kind of fluctuates, but. It's people, it's people getting their dose of sobriety every day, you know, like in New York, AA meetings are still closed down. So yeah, the only way people go to meetings is via Zoom or, you know, sitting in a, in a, in a park somewhere, but this is, uh, it's steady. And if it, if it weren't for the Zoom and, and the hymns, you know, the, you know, the hymn stuff never stopped during the whole pandemic. Um, if it wasn't for those two things, uh, pandemic might've, might've felt a little different. It might've been a little more difficult. But it, it, it kept me busy. I always had something to do. Like, it never ended, you know? And there were many times where I was like, God, I wish I didn't have anything to do. I wish, I wish I could just sit here and do nothing. But then the days where I have nothing to do, what do I do? I'm sitting there looking at my phone, you know, scrolling through stuff and yeah. I'm playing a video game. Like, you know, that's not, that's doesn't do anything for you. So now it's it kept me busy throughout the whole pandemic. And uh, life's getting back to normal now. And it's everything's adjusting, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a lot on. Um, also, you you've got a fiance and yep. with daughter, so that's a big day, I guess, coming up at some stage in the not too distant future. And we'll you've see. also got, as you say, well, okay. Well, <laughs> and then you've got all these. We're kind of non-conventional. <laughs> we're just kind of flowing through. Like things are good, so we're just oh, good. We're just going with the flow. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. She's okay. in the other room, and uh, da- daughter June. She's a uh, in the other room doing some video game thing with her friends, all their online video game friends that they do now, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, excellent, mate. So, yeah, you, there's that family responsibilities that you you have to spend time. Do, do, you, uh, do you get much time for yourself or? No. How, how do you? <laughs> uh, not really. When I, when I go to work, really, that's it. Um, you know, it seems, we, you know, we live in Manhattan. It's, 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 we live in a small apartment, so it's, it's tight. You know, and, and the kid is homeschooling. Her school is still closed. So one of us has yeah, to right. help okay. her through school every day. So we um we do a good job of delegating responsibilities. 
but yeah, like, like free time for myself. Uh, if there's waves, I'll drive to the beach. You know, it's only about an hour from here and, uh, one of the two beaches. And, um, if I can, I'll go surf for a day. If not, I'll go for a run. I always make sure I, I, uh, exercise every day if I can. Um, the, the, uh, water temperature, hopefully it's starting to warm up a bit now. It must be pretty cold. It's probably. frozen. It's frozen here. It's like, uh, well, I guess it'd be three degrees Celsius. It's cold. Um, it's yeah, like right. Fahrenheit. but you know, at the yeah, end of the okay. day, you know, what I tell myself is, and what the way I try to live my life is, you know, I didn't sober up to be miserable. And I think that's very important to remember is that I see so many people going through life sober, stressed out, worried about this, worried about that, um, fighting, arguing, having a really rough time. And that's not, that's not what I want. You know, I don't, I don't want that kind of life. You know, I was miserable when I was drinking and when I was fighting those battles and I was lying to people and, and my life was chaos. I didn't sober up to continue living that way, you know? So I try to keep this attitude of gratitude. You know, I try to be thankful and I try to have the, the right perspective and I try to do the, the good things for myself. And I try to have, have as much fun as I can. You know, when I find myself getting overwhelmed and too stressed out and you know, the hymns national hymns national may need stuff and the family needs stuff and hymns at the airline needs stuff. And, and everything kind of seems overwhelming. I take a timeout. And the first thing I do yeah. is when that's starting to happen, I put the phone down. Done. Because pretty much anything that's coming through there, whether it's, you know, JetBlue hymns or national hymns, or I can come back. I can come back in an hour or so. The world is not going to yeah. collapse if I don't answer an email or a text message right now. And, um, you know, I got to try to focus on what's on what's the important thing that's going on right at the time. You know, if my family needs me, well, there they are. That's it. That's what I'm here for. You know, if, if I need a breather, if I need some personal time, need to go for a run, I go for a run. I do what I have to do. But, yeah, most important thing about sobriety is that, that I didn't do all this and go through all that to uh, to be miserable. We only have one life and then we die, you know. And yeah. Asked me if I was trying to kill myself, you know. I don't. I want. I want to make the yeah. most of what I have today. And yeah. well, it sounds, sounds like you are, right? You um. Yeah. You know, it, you, you're such a positive guy, and uh, and I know it's you. You talk about you know you that that quest for happiness, and it seems that you are a lot of the time. But a lot of it, you you're not thinking of yourself. You. You're directing your energy into thinking about others and helping others, which is just sensational. I, would, I wonder if that's part of of being, you know, pursuing that goal of happiness. And you know what? That that helps me helping those people, helping people that need it helps me. And I think happiness is not even the right word. I think what I'm really looking for is, is peace, is peace and serenity. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah. I'm I want to look in the mirror and, and you know be happy with what I'm looking at. You know, I, uh, and sometimes it's, I've got to be selfless to do that. You know, I've got to help others to, to really be happy with myself. And that's totally cool because, you know, anytime, you know, my, my, I can be just as negative and pessimistic as, as the next guy, but when I'm doing something to help somebody else, or when I'm listening to someone else, I'm not thinking of my own problems, you know, it's, 
I'm not focused on me, me when I'm helping someone else, you know? And I think that is, is such a massive lesson that I've learned. Yeah. That's great. Eh? Sensational. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your selflessness and also your, your honesty. I think, you know, we, we can hear so many stories about people that don't, don't tell the full story or, or, you know, modify it or, or dress it up. So it's, it's nice to hear, but, you, you just say it how it is. <laughs> I like that. Right. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, mate. Thanks very much for for doing this. This is just sensational. And I, mean, I, I could I could ask you questions all day. You've got such a great outlook on life. And unfortunately, with these borders being closed, we, we can't catch up face to face. And I think I mentioned once uh, not so long ago, I'm trying to organise a an Australian training course down here. And I mean, if it keeps getting delayed and the borders eventually open, hopefully a couple of you guys can come down for it. It should Love be pretty them. good. So never, I've never yeah. been Can't wait. Uh, bring your surfboard and come wow. to the sunny Sunshine Coast. I will. I looked it up the last time you told me that you live in Sunshine Coast. Oh, did you? Okay. Of, you're north of uh, Brisbane, right? Yes, no, that's it, north of yeah, Brisbane. Um, cool. the, the two, my two personal favourites are uh, Noosa, is really nice. Noosa Beach, that's N-O-O-S-A. And the other one that's close to me is Malulabar. All right. It's, it, it's not Indian, it's Aboriginal, Malulabar. It's not, uh, yeah. You guys have fun uh, words. Yes. <laughs> you have fun words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, that's why they picked them. I thought, oh, that'd be a fun word. Let's let's call it that. So, yeah, no, good one, mate. That's excellent. So, um, yeah, hopefully soon we'll catch up and I'll probably see you at the – there's that Zoom yep. uh, US HIMSS conference coming up yep. in it's a couple awesome. of weeks. So. Yep, get the, uh, get the time zones and the dates correct. Adjust them to yeah. Australia dates and times. <clears throat> yeah. It's going to yeah, be the middle I'll, of the night. I'll just – yeah, I'm just going to turn up a day early and wait till someone else turns up. <laughs> yeah. All right, great stuff. All right, well, thanks very much for that, Billy. Fantastic. Awesome. Absolutely, Andrew. I feel very grateful to have had this opportunity to talk to Billy and spread his story to a wider audience. For me, there were plenty of moments when I was listening to him and thought, wow, I thought I was the only one that thought like that. And I think it's to a large part because he is so honest. He's such a positive guy who, in his words, hasn't come all this way to be miserable. I hope you have enjoyed this edition of Flying Straight, Piloting a Sober Life. I really appreciate the feedback and support from a number of you out there that have listened to the previous episodes. All comments and tips for improvement are most welcome. You can contact me via email, andrew at flyingstraight.com.au. And if you'd like to check out the HIMS websites in Australia, it is aushims.org.au. And for our friends in New Zealand, it's hymns.org.nz. And our US friends, it's hymnsprogram.com. I look forward to sharing another adventure with you soon.